You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Had the world gone in a different way and say, uh, we will pay for our internet services and for our social networks with money rather than without data, then maybe we wouldn't have this problem. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hi, Dave. On this week's show, I've got a fascinating application of anonymized data, which shows travel patterns during the coronavirus pandemic. Ben's story is all about surveillance and the temptation to increase surveillance when we're in a situation like this. And later in the show, my conversation with Professor Yehuda Lindell. CEO and co-founder of Unbound Tech, we're going to be talking about government requests for data. What does that mean for your organization? While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. We'll be back after a word from our sponsors. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And we are back. Ben, why don't you uh, start things off for us this week? What do you have for us? So my article comes from the publication The Week, and it's an article entitled The Temptation of Coronavirus Surveillance by Navneet Alang. Obviously, all of us have coronavirus on the minds. Many of us are isolated and quarantined in our homes unless we're essential workers. There's a lot to worry about, not just the illness itself, but the economic effects. But Mm. one of the sort of tertiary areas of concern, as identified in this article, is the surveillance, the digital surveillance we are introducing during the epidemic and whether that surveillance will persist after the emergency is over. We've seen articles talking about broad phone metadata surveillance, tracking people's movements. I know we're going to get to one such story later in this podcast, but there have been a lot of other digital surveillance methods that have been used both in this country and around the world. China, of course, which is not a democracy, has been using an application for people who want to go out in public as their coronavirus epidemic abates a little bit. And people have to self-identify with the color on their application, red, yellow, or green, whether they've been infected, immune, or ready to go back into the workforce. Other democracies like South Korea are using location tracking to do what's called contact tracing, figure out for the people who are positive, who did those individuals interact with during the incubation period. A lot of privacy advocates, of which, of course, there are many, are saying that this is an acceptable use of mass surveillance. Even people who are extremely skeptical of mass surveillance. I saw Glenn Greenwald of Intercept fame, who is probably the internet's foremost opponent of electronic surveillance. I saw him on social media saying, look, 
in these times, you know, even I am not against unusual surveillance measures to help us fight this pandemic. And when he says it, it certainly <laughs> carries a lot of weight. Is that that old, uh, you know, there are no atheists in foxholes joke? Yeah, I, I think that's kind of where we are now. There are no uh, civil libertarians during a pandemic. Right. Of course, there were no civil libertarians in the 10 days following the September 11th attacks. We put into place a national security apparatus and a surveillance state that persists to this day. And that emergency, it's never really over because we can't conclusively win a war on terrorism, but the acute threat has been over for a while. So Mm. the threat here is that we can introduce these tools, companies and the government can get used to using them, and then once the emergency abates, they will still be in circulation. We will have just sort of accepted them. So it's sort of the conundrum of having these measures introduced when they're necessary, like during this the pandemic right now, while we are quarantined and isolated and wanting to get back to normal life, versus the threat of these surveillance techniques persisting into the future. Now, is it possible that these measures, when they're put in effect, they could automatically time out, they could automatically sunset? Is, is that something that's done from time to time? It is. Sunsetting, though, is not a panacea. And I take that guidance from our experience with the September 11th attacks. The Patriot Act was set up as a piece of legislation that was due to sunset. I think the first sunset date was 2006. It has been reauthorized countless times since then, including most recently certain provisions of the Patriot Act, I think were at least reauthorized by the Senate as of two weeks ago, and the House is expected to follow suit. So even if you introduce a sunset provision, the fear is that the government will get used to using these tools, and the general public will see that these tools have been effective in performing their intended goal, which was to slow the spread of this disease. And these reauthorizations will become a matter of course instead of an opportunity for robust debate. You know, I think there's a saying among my my more libertarian friends that nothing is as eternal as a new government program. Uh, <laughs> once it's introduced, it is very hard to take it away. And I think that that applies here. Do you suppose that, that we're going to see a, a bit of a... I don't know, comparative experiment here to see the nations like China who have the ability to, because of, you know, their form of government to be able to Mm -hmm. say, this is what's going to be done and you're going to do it uh, versus what we do where we have a little more, uh, a lot more give and take and debate and checks and balances on things like our freedoms, our privacy and, and so on. It'll be interesting to see how that affects the outcomes and and how that affects the the conversation going on. If a country like China does much better and fewer people die, can you imagine people saying, you know, maybe uh, in times <laughs> like this, this whole freedom thing. So a couple things on that. I would say it's more appropriate and useful for us to compare the data to other democracies or other republics across the world. Mm-hmm. Largely because we don't want to be authoritarian. We have uh, political values that we want to keep intact after this emergency ends. But also on a more practical level, I think all of us would agree that the data and information coming from China is 
probably less than trustworthy. I think the original death toll in Wuhan, where the virus originated, was listed as something like 2,000. And new data has come out to show that that figure has been called into question. So, you know, it would be more difficult for us to actually evaluate whether their surveillance practices were successful. Something like South Korea, which is a democracy, that's potentially a model for us. And, and we may be able to look at countries like that and see, you know, whether these types of surveillance measures actually worked. Germany is another one. They have a pretty high rate of cases, but a relatively low rate of fatalities. And basically, they've done that through testing and tracing. And I'm sure some of that has involved some of these surveillance tactics. So I think it is useful for comparison. One other thing I wanted to note, I looked at some public opinion polling. I think it was from the Harris Organization. Hmm. Overwhelming majorities of Americans are in favor of temporary surveillance practices during these types of emergencies, this emergency in particular. So I think over 70% of people are okay with cell phone tracking for the purpose of tracing contacts. Those are overwhelming numbers. So it's just interesting to see where the public is on this. I think the public, like even some civil liberties advocates, are willing to at least temporarily do away with these principles if it helps fight this global pandemic. Yeah, and I suppose, uh, as with all of these things, it's important to uh, have folks out there being vigilant for when the emergency passes uh, to be out there shouting from the rooftops, hey, everybody, time to claw these things back. Yeah, you know, oftentimes we're just so happy that the emergency has ended. We all go back to work and we don't necessarily realize that there are right. certain laws and policies still in place that can be used for more nefarious purposes. One thing this article mentioned is that a lot of the surveillance tools we use for the war on terrorism were used in the United States against First Amendment activities like Black Lives Matter protests. So if we aren't vigilant and we let the emergency end and just sort of accept the new realities of location tracking and other surveillance tools, then I think we're going to regret it. And so I think it is up to all of us to stay vigilant. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting story. My story this week is is related to that. Uh, this comes from uh, The Daily Dot. Uh, it's a story written by Mikhail Palin. Uh, this was actually sent to us by a friend of the show, Elizabeth Wharton. She's at Lawyer Liz on Twitter. Uh, she's a former guest on our show, and uh, she brought this Great one to our attention. Great friend of the pod. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. The article is uh, titled, uh, perhaps a bit breathlessly, Terrifying Cell Phone Heat Map Shows Just How Much People Are Still Traveling. And the subtitle is, Want to Know Where All Those Florida Spring Breakers Are Now? This is fascinating to me. There's a, as part of this article, I guess this article was sort of a, triggered by a video that was using a combination of data tools. There was one tool that does the data collection, uh, actually uh, one of the many companies who collects location data off of cell phones, as you and I have talked about many times mm -hmm. here. But there's uh, another tool you can load that data in to uh, one of the many tools that visualizes that data. In this case, it's a, it's a tool called Tectonics. And what they've done in this video is they zoom in down onto a specific beach in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I, I just imagine we'll yourself... That, uh, beach patient zero. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, imagine yourself at the beach, uh, spring break or the summertime. You look to your left, look to your right. Uh, as far as the eye can see, you've got a limited sight line there. That's basically what they do here is they, they're able to go in and, and lasso a, a group of, 
of location data points on this beach and then go forward in time and watch as these data points distribute themselves around the country. And boy, from a tracking the potential for the spread of a disease, it is fascinating to see all of these little location pings make their way pretty much everywhere east of the Mississippi. It just spreads out and off it goes. It's into our community here in Maryland, if you look closely at the map. Yeah, I mean, I think all of us were struck a couple of weeks ago. I think it was right before most states were putting in these shelter-in-place orders. But Florida was behind the ball, and their public beaches remained open during the beginning part of this COVID-19 emergency. And there were Mm -hmm. viral photos and videos out of spring breakers on the beach in large crowds. There was one guy who famously said, look, if I get corona, I got Corona and he was, you know, yeah, just looked right, like your right. standard spring <laughs> right. break partier. Yeah, his parents must be so proud. Must be so proud of him. Apparently he apologized, <laughs> which, you know, good for him. All but, right. Well, good for uh, him. He might have already spread the disease. Uh, yeah. But the problem is we don't have strict borders across state lines in this country. So the governor of Florida or policymakers in Florida could say it's the right of our state to make decisions as to whether to close public spaces. But as this map shows, it has ripple effects across the entire eastern seaboard and into the Midwest. So uh, people end their spring break in Fort Lauderdale, get on the interstate, get on the airplane, go back to their communities and start to spread this disease. Uh, And I think this article and this surveillance technique just provides great visual evidence of how quickly just one single beach in Fort Lauderdale can spread this virus. I mean, we're talking about a relatively, a very small geographic area, relatively speaking. And to have these pinged dots all over the country is just, is very striking to look at. And, you know, I think it adds even more justification for why we need to shut down public spaces, because this is how the rate of transmission just excels. And it's very disturbing. Uh, what about from the privacy point of view, you know, the folks who provide this data, the, the company who does the location gathering, their name is Xmode. They, as most of the companies in this uh, business say that the data is anonymized. But of course, the folks who research this stuff, they say that I want to say it's like 99% of the time they can de-anonymize that data, just being able to correlate different bits of information. If your device is sitting still at a certain location between midnight and 6 a.m., chances are that's your house, right? Right. And then if every day you're going to, you know, your essential business in Michigan, we're going to know that that's probably one individual. We can get that person's address and we can get that person's employment information. Then we can take a look at that person's Facebook profile and see that, look, they were in Fort Lauderdale two weeks ago. Either let's publicly shame them or, you know, potentially the consequences could be more severe. States are, including Maryland, have introduced criminal penalties for violating these shelter-in-place orders. Now, these things aren't retroactive, so there was no shelter-in-place order when this took place. Uh, But you can understand why the threat certainly would be there. And this connects to our previous segments. We heard stories here in Maryland of a party where uh, a guy got 60 individuals together, refused to disperse the party, and was arrested for violating the governor's executive order. Now, what mm-hmm. if we tracked the cell phones of, you know, we just swept up this uh, cell phone metadata from that particular house on that night and 
and tracked those people across the, this geographical area, we get a lot of personal information about them, even if the data was completely anonymized. And I think that's a very realistic proposition. So I'm all for publicly shaming people <laughs> in the right circumstances. <laughs> but I just think we really have to think about the consequences here. Um, and not to blame Xmode. I mean, I think they're providing a very useful service. They've also um, used their tools to track movements across cities that have had significant outbreaks. So they noticed a, a, a large cessation of social activity when they were tracking Rome. Uh, in between the middle of February and the middle of March. And they compared that to Seattle, where there was a little bit of social distancing going on, but not to the same degree. Uh, hmm. And that's very useful information for the public and for policymakers. It's just, you know, like we said, once this tool is introduced, we, we have to be very vigilant that uh, it not be abused. What about, I can imagine a scenario, like you say, that person uh, who, who threw the party just because. And But we've also heard stories of there have been some preachers, some ministers, some church leaders who've said, no, we're going to have our services on Sunday mornings and we're going to go ahead and do that despite the um, prohibitions from the governor, from the state. What if you were able to use this sort of data to say, okay, here's everybody who was at this event Guess what, everybody? You're, you are all now under a uh, mandatory quarantine. You're not allowed to leave your house. Everybody else can go to the store. Everybody else can go to for a walk. But uh, we've got you pegged here as being uh, at this location. Here are the consequences. Yeah, that part is, is very disturbing to me. I mean, you can be very supportive of public health measures, but when you start to infringe on people's First Amendment rights— it's mm. it's a major area of concern. And most of our surveillance laws, including the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, prohibit surveillance activities solely based on First Amendment protected uh, events. So mm. you can't just go and surveil a church or a, a single church or a mosque, for example, under that law. So that's where, uh, you know, I think things could get potentially very dangerous. And I worry about it when we're talking about activities that are protected by the First Amendment. Yeah, interesting. All right. Well, uh, lots of uh, interesting stories this week. Uh, it's time to move on to our listener on the line. Our listener on the line this week is uh, someone named Karen, and she wrote in and she asks, she says, Ben and Dave, I've been hearing reference to force majeure in some of the conversations regarding legal obligations in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Could you explain what this means? That's a good question. It's a fantastic question. This is, of course, a Latin term, as uh, many legal <laughs> terms are. Uh, it means right. superior force, and it is a concept in contract law. Um, it's less prevalent in our common law system, descending from our English ancestors, and more common in other European countries that have more of like a civil law system. But the basic idea is contracts can be declared null and void if there is some sort of superior superseding event. Usually, hmm. you know, we're thinking about acts of God, hurricanes, floods, earthquakes, you know, crazier things like a nuclear explosion, solar storms. Where this becomes very acute during our current emergency is there are going to be a lot of contracts that will be unable to be performed because of this emergency. A lot of businesses are closed and they're not going to be able to fulfill their contractual obligations. Mm -hmm. So 
the question becomes in these millions of contracts, does force majeure apply? Can one party get out of the contract simply because there was this act of God? And there is going to be mounds and mounds of litigation on this very question. Generally in our system, it's incumbent upon the parties to a contract to explicitly write out what those acts of God would be. You know, so it's, it's usually a part of standard contract clauses. Some of them probably do contain language about a global pandemic. Many of them do not. And so we're going to see a bevy of lawsuits related to exactly how to interpret the, the force majeure rule. One thing I will note is there's a common law concept called frustration of purpose that is a more common uh, way for parties to get out of a contract here in our legal system. And that's if the purpose of the contract becomes null and void because of superseding events. The example <laughs> I always use in my class is there are a lot of people who rented out their homes and apartments as Airbnbs for the 2017 inauguration, assuming that Hillary Clinton would win uh, that election. And, you know, all of their friends in liberal areas like New York and California, you know, they expected them to come and stay in those Airbnbs. She Mm. did not win the election. The purpose of those contracts became null and void. And that actually could have been a justification because that purpose had been frustrated for one party to back out of uh, that contract. So I think that's more of the concept that we'll see here, where companies will say that because of some frustration of purpose or, you know, the uh, not necessarily an act of God, but just the inability of us to perform because the purpose of the contract became null and void will justify one party or the other getting out of a contract. Will this come down to, uh, you know, individual per contract uh, negotiations? I guess what I'm getting at is, will there be some declaration that because this was officially declared a national emergency, does that take some of the ambiguity out of it as to whether or not force majeure, for example, can be invoked? I really don't think it does just because of the way our legal system works. It is court by court, case by case. You can hmm. take precedents from other cases, but first we would have to see those cases get brought up, right? So there has to be a hmm. first wave of cases where courts start to interpret force majeure provisions or the lack of provisions in the context of this pandemic. We don't hmm. have the way a lot of European countries have a government body that can step in and make an interpretation for all of the courts. There's something called the Universal Commercial Code in the United States, which covers a lot of these transactions. Potentially, you could amend that, or Uniform Commercial Code, I'm sorry. Potentially, that could be amended, but that process uh, is is quite cumbersome and, and could take a long hmm. time. And probably, uh, organizations are going to want to litigate these claims in relatively short order so that they're not out a lot of money because of um, the impossibility of performing a contract. So I'm less convinced that we're going to get sort of a ruling on a tablet from down high saying, all right, across the entire United States, uh, force majeure now means it's covered by global pandemics. I, I yeah. would not anticipate that we'd see something like that. You know, I remember after 9-11, I had uh, friends who were in the commercial real estate business and they were saying that it was fascinating to see the the legal wranglings taking place after that event and that, you know, they were they were arguing over whether or not it was one event or two because the two towers falling were they separate events or one because that would affect the payout from the insurance policies. 
Yeah, I mean, I've read about those pieces of litigation, and they went on for years. Some of them are probably right. still going on because there were so many insurance claims that were made. Um, yeah. So I could see that happening here. Businesses that have had to shut down, they've been unable to provide services, suppliers who've had their supply chains interrupted. They're going to get sued because that's just what happens in our legal system. People are going right. to want to recover damages. And this is litigation that I think we could see go on for a very long time. Hmm. All right. Well, thanks to uh, our listener, Karen, for sending that in. Very interesting uh, topic of discussion. We would love to hear from you. Our caveat call-in number is 410-618-3720. That's 410-618-3720. You can also send us an audio file with your question or an email. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. Coming up next, my conversation with Professor Yehuda Lindell, CEO and co-founder of Unbound Tech. We're going to be discussing government requests for your data. But first, a word from our sponsors. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero-trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. And we are back. Uh, Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Professor Yehuda Lindell, uh, CEO and co-founder of Unbound Tech. We discussed government requests for your data and what that means for your organization. Here's my conversation with Professor Yehuda Lindell. When I think about accessible customer data, I think about the fact that with the growth of SaaS and a lot of our information being in the cloud uh, or with external providers, that information is vulnerable. We've seen multiple cases of breaches where someone isn't necessarily going after me, but I get caught up in another, uh, a different mega breach. Uh, one of the great examples, though it's not uh, that recent, is uh, that one of the administrators at Dropbox was using their admin password also for LinkedIn. And when the LinkedIn, when LinkedIn was hacked, uh, that was a long time ago indeed, that person's password was then used to breach Dropbox and actually get a lot of information about a lot of customers. So that's part of the dangers of the uh, the SaaS world is that attackers don't necessarily even need to be targeting you and you can get caught up in one of these uh, very large breaches. It's also similar in terms of the silent subpoena issue. In the old days, if the government wanted to get your information, they had to come at you with a subpoena, which is actually fine as long as they have a subpoena. We think that that's uh, okay, but you you do want to know about it. You do want to know that you're under investigation or what the situation is. And once we've outsourced our data to a cloud or to a a SaaS provider, then that subpoena and that investigation can go on without you even knowing about it. Hmm. Well, can you give us a, a sort of an overview of uh, when we're talking about accessible customer data, the different types of that, the different p- ways and places that that plays out, that that's a reality? 
We can break it into a number of categories. The the one that most people actually think about is the one that I'm least concerned about. <laughs> people think mm-hmm. about things like your um, credit card number or things like that. That actually, you know, is a relatively solvable issue. It's a pain when your credit card number is stolen, but nothing personally bad has happened to you. Nothing personal that is damaging about you has been revealed to the world. Uh, so that category, which I would call the security category, is one that I'm much less, less concerned about. There's the whole other category of what we'd call private data or confidential data, data which is personal relating to you. And here, once again, I'll split this into two subcategories. One of the things that you actually don't think are too private or personal, the things that you post readily online to your friends in in Facebook or or other places, I I don't actually have Facebook, but for those who do, uh, which is a large percentage of the world, it could be your dog's name, your uh, uh, teachers in school, your uh, favorite uh, musical instrument, your favorite sport. I think you'll already guess where I'm getting at. All of that information mm-hmm. is also the same information that's used by organizations to identify you when you've forgotten your password or you need additional information to do a bank transfer or things like that. So actually that personal information, although not really considered secret by you, when that falls into the hands of an attacker, they can use that to do identity theft. They can use that to steal your account. And uh, so in that sense, it's also problematic. No one's specifically targeting me. I'm not interesting enough. No one really wants to know my dog's name. It's not important at all. But given all that information, they can sell that to uh, people who then do go ahead and actually make money off that. And the Mm. final category is the actual private data. This can be medical data. I think we've all talked about concerns of if my insurance company knows something that I have a relative that with some disease, will that affect my ability to get insurance? These things are not imaginary. Uh, But they're also in things that some people think less about, which is location data. I actually think the location data is the most sensitive data out there. I've seen real location data multiple times. Now it's actually quite easy to do if you use Android or, or then you can just go and, and look at what Google knows about where you've been. And by just looking at location data, I know where you live, where you work, where you shop, who you go out with, who you meet. I can, of course, correlate different locations. If I find that two specific people have been in the same location multiple times, then I can assume they're meeting each other. It, it actually says almost everything about you. And that is something that really, really is a huge risk. And a lot of organizations actually have our location data, and that's a huge risk in my opinion. So what sort of mitigations can people take to protect themselves here? It's very difficult. (laughs) It's very difficult. Had the world gone in a different way and say, uh, we will pay for our internet services and for our social networks with money rather than with our data, then maybe we wouldn't have this problem. Uh, I do want to say that this is not something that an individual person can really do, but there really is, I think, a big opportunity for services to say you can you can choose to pay with your money rather than with your data. If that possibly does exist, then I think uh, people should choose it. Beyond that, there's a certain choice that I personally do. I, I like to give my data to organizations that want my money first and my data second. So I'm mm-hmm. not naive. I don't think that Apple doesn't also want my data and isn't also monetizing my data. But Apple's primary business model is my money. 
Microsoft's primary business model is my money. So I don't use Google uh, Cloud and Google Docs. I use Microsoft and Office 365 and I don't use Android. I use Apple. And that way I try to support the business model that says I want to pay with my money. It might sound a little bit strange. <laughs> I want to give away my money. but It's actually not that much money. And, and I think that this is where I want the world to go. Beyond mm. that, what I think that everybody can do in the short term and the immediate term is to have a separation of powers. So for example, I don't need to connect my ways to my actual identity, and therefore I don't. If I'm, I'm using Gmail, then I, I don't use Gmail, but if I do log into a Gmail account because I need to, to access something else, then I'll make sure to log out of that straight away. If I always leave my Gmail open, then I would suggest having one browser where I'm using my Gmail, let's make it Chrome, and then use another browser, say Safari, for everything else. And that way I'm not giving access to Google to all of my tabs and everything that I'm doing online and connecting that to my Gmail account and, and furthermore to my real world persona via my cell phone and other things. So if it's possible to sort of separate things out, and uh, then that's number one. Number two is every time you allow an app on your phone to track your location or every time you give permission for the, to access your microphone or your camera and other things, you have to understand that there is a risk involved. So do I need the weather app to always know where I am or only when I'm using the app? In my opinion, it's only when I'm using the app. And therefore, I don't give uh, permission to my weather app to access my location always. So just think about before we actually allow or give these permissions, let's think about, is it actually needed? Do I have to wait three seconds for my weather app to work out where I am when I open it? Yes, I, I think I can live with waiting those three seconds. It's okay. The, these mm -hmm. are sort of immediate measures that people can do beyond all the standard things of turning off tracking cookies and, and, and other settings that are uh, privacy-preserving settings that becoming more and more uh, popular. Uh, Apple has implemented quite a lot of them and, and they're doing a good job of that. When it comes to things like storing your data in the cloud, thinking of protecting yourself against things like you mentioned, like the silent subpoenas, what about the use of encryption? How much protection does that provide? So encryption is a basic. You always have to do it. And the amount of protection it provides depending on what you're doing. And I'll give you a couple of examples. If I'm using iCloud backup, then uh, or, or another you know service like that, then the strong cryptographic key is actually held in the cloud because they want to ensure that my data can never get lost. And therefore, the strength is really based on the strength of a password. And if someone comes with a subpoena, there's a very likely case that they'll be able to uh, get to my data. I don't specifically want to point out iCloud because I don't want to make a mistake here. I'm not exactly sure of the specific details of the of the backup, but the backup is essentially one in most cases where even if you lose your password, the uh, cloud provider can uh, help you to recover your data. If that is the case, then you know then they can do that without you. So if they're able, if you lose your password and you're not losing your data, then you know that actually you're in trouble, which is not the case, by the way, on my Mac. On my Mac, when I encrypt my disk, I get a very clear message saying, if you lose your password, it's your problem. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's a good thing. That's a sign that actually it's well protected. There are other things like WhatsApp. So WhatsApp actually has end-to-end -end encryption, which means that every time I start exchanging and talking to someone, 
a pair of keys is uh, generated that are local on both devices. And, and that means that there is no way of going to WhatsApp servers and getting getting all of my data. Unless I say that I want to back it up, like in iCloud. So actually, I don't back up my WhatsApp in uh, iCloud because I want to have that protection of end-to-end encryption. So if it's end-to-end encrypted, it's very, very secure. They would actually have to come directly to you, which is what we think the situation should be. Uh, I don't know many people who are against truly targeted surveillance with a subpoena when the police have a specific reason to think that person A is a danger. We don't want this mass surveillance. That's what we're really against. When you're looking at the cloud, what you really want is if you're an organization rather than an individual, you want to make sure that you have as much control over your keys as possible. So there is this notion of bring your own key and I put the key in the cloud. It's very nice, but once you've brought the key and given it to someone else, then you've lost all control. And a rogue administrator can access that key as, uh, and this has happened in the past. And law enforcement uh, can access that key and get your data. If you keep control of your key yourself by encrypting it and then uploading, or uh, having a system which enables you to have control of your keys at all time, then you're, um, you are much less vulnerable. So there's certainly a much better practice. So on an organizational level, I think that people have to do much better risk analyses of what the possible scenarios are that can happen and how they can protect themselves. And rather than just saying, oh, I'm in Amazon and I turned on encryption, everything's fine. That is not good enough. And, and another thing which I think is really important is there are two types of organizations when it comes to security. There are those who are most interested in checking all of the boxes, but they're not really necessarily looking at the actual security ramifications. And there are others that really want security and checking the boxes and doing all the standards and the certifications just help them understand whether they're on, in the right direction, but they really want security. Today, to be in the first camp is just inexcusable. We, organizations today have to be in the second camp. They have to understand that security is actually a threat to your business. A huge breach can have very big ramifications. It can be also your own IP. It can be loss of customer trust. It can be huge fines with GDPR and other regulations that are out there. And so I would strongly recommend that people start taking it seriously, analyze what their risks are, uh, make sure they're doing the best practices for encryption and signing and other cryptographic protections and security protections that are out there, uh, and understand that having professionals in-house and thinking about how you keep control of your own assets is very important. It's good to rely on the cloud for what they're encrypting, but to only rely on that and say, okay, encryption is encryption without thinking about where the key is and who can access it, that's being uh, very naive to say the least. All right, uh, lots of interesting stuff there, Ben. What do you think? Yeah, one thing that stuck out to me about the general tenor of his interview is the more conveniences we see on a given website or a given service, the more likely it is that the best security protocols are not in place. So hmm. if, if an application, for example, wants us to turn on our location tracking for convenience purposes, we should be more suspicious that they're hmm. going to, to collect our, our personal data. Another thing that, that stuck out to me is which data is particularly valuable. I would have 
thought, just like I think the conventional wisdom is that our credit card numbers, that's something that we should be most fearful about getting into the hands of of the wrong people because they can dip into our financial resources. But some of the information we share on social media, and this is a great point that he brought up, are things that are probably used as security questions. Which street did you grow up on? Who was your best friend growing up? Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And because we overshare on social media, I'm probably referencing my best friends, or if, if I'm the average person, several times throughout my my Facebook interactions, that information is going to be available to nefarious actors, and they could get into our bank accounts, healthcare portals. So I, I just thought that was something that I hadn't really thought about that much that was particularly interesting to me. Yeah. I'm curious, um, what what's your take on uh, this notion of privacy canaries, you know, as a sort of workaround for government requests for data when a company is not allowed to say that they got a request for data? You know, there's some companies will put up a web page that basically says, as long as this web page is up, we have not received any, you know, requests for data. And if that page goes away, it's sort of a, <laughs> a backhanded way to say, that may not be uh, true yeah. anymore. You know? <laughs> we're, not, we're not saying we've gotten requests, but right. we're sort of saying it. I mean, I actually think it's pretty useful from the consumer's perspective because yeah. I talk about things in some of my courses like national security letters where they actually put gag orders on the companies that are recipients. So right. you're legally forbidden from discussing, in some cases, even with your attorney, uh, although that's, that's hmm. begun to change, whether uh, you received this administrative subpoena or let alone which what information is contained within that subpoena. So these canaries are probably the best option that a company has in revealing to its consumers whether they've handed data over uh, to the government. I think it's, it's one of those things that it's, it's, it's not necessarily transparent, but it's better than nothing. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our thanks to the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security for their participation. You can learn more at mdchhs.com. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.